Welcome to Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders, technology leaders in higher education, and most importantly, students. To chat on hot topics, share solutions, collaborate, and envision the future of higher education together. Let's illuminate higher education once and for all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Illuminate Higher Education. I'm Diana Chen, and I'm here with your host, Kieran Kodathala. Hey, Kieran. How's it going today? Hey, Diana. It's going great. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm really excited to kick off this podcast with our very first episode, and I've got something really exciting I want to talk to you about today. I know you, you, I'm sure you have a lot of views on it, and it's a very timely and relevant topic, and that is how the pandemic has affected higher education and how it will continue to affect higher education long term. Um, so I guess a good place to start for those listening who maybe are, are not in higher education or don't have kids in higher education and they haven't really kept up with what's been happening since March of 2020. Can you just give a recap of what the current situation in higher education is with the pandemic? Yeah, well, obviously um, we all have been dealing with uh, the impacts of higher education for the last nine months, if you will. It sounds like nine years, <laughs> almost like we, we started this around March, um, especially in the United States, where we weren't sure um, until March on whether it will hit United States as much as it did. And also, like, if it does, what is the level of impact? Um, I think we were, again, at least, at least I was, um, I was probably more hopeful that you know, it will not impact the United States because of the fact that we were surrounded by water all around, and we thought that somehow it will be um, it'll be contained in Europe, if you will. Um, however, um, it um, the, the spring semester was really complete shock for universities and colleges, I'm sure, because when we started spring, uh, everything was hunky-dory, and uh, we were going about uh, instructing students in the normal way of teaching them in the classrooms and uh, going about fully fully built quads, right? Um, you know, kids were, students were going to campuses, um, collaborating in the cafeterias, uh, rolling around in the quads, like all the things that you expect um, students to really have fun with, like going to bars, um, um, exchanging information, you know, obviously being living in dorms um, in a four bedroom, like four member, one studio apartments, stuff like that. But when the pandemic hit in uh, probably early February and then starting to show its real impact in March, uh, our uh, first, uh, you know, the first response for the United States is very similar to how uh, Europe and probably Southeast Asia has uh, resolved itself also, where we thought our first response was, let's see if we can just uh, shut down everything for six weeks. I think that was the original plan. And because the the hope was, if we can somehow quarantine everybody for six weeks, then whoever is impacted will, um, will either get hospitalized 
or you know get get uh, get cured or you know the symptoms will re resolve themselves and then when when everything opens back up uh, things will start getting back normal that was the original model behind a six week shutdown um, obviously um, i don't want to relive the history but you know it, it did not pan out that case uh, especially in the united states the six weeks were not really a complete shutdown it was a state by state lockdown and you know it really did not reveal the results that we were thinking uh, it would. So that's a case study in itself on how the United States has let this virus progress and spread um, almost like without without any um, without any roadblocks or speed breakers, if you will. And I think that's a different story. But I think the the real story is uh, at least that is for the relevant for this conversation is how higher education was adapting to this uh, rolling um, rolling lockdowns or shutdowns. So our first step for higher education was to follow the government rules or the state government rules to shut down campuses for the, you know, for mostly spring, right? Um, they thought that they will open it back up in summer. Some institutions tried it with uh, very little luck, um, but most institutions committed come themselves to open the campuses back in, uh, in fall, um, which is starts in August, uh, assuming that uh, whoever uh, will get sick, uh, might get sick and be, or the students will come back and there might be the minimal impacts. But there are some institutions, some of it was because of state, some of it is because of some of the way the institutions operate. Um, they decided to not open campuses for fall. Um, so we had a mixed gamut of how institutions um, reacted to this. Uh, I would say more than 60% of institutions decided to do um, a combination of on-site instructions, but mostly virtual instruction. Even the institutions that have done on-site instruction, they have, inst instructors have been, um, been uh, going through the classrooms like or instructing the students through Zoom sessions to protect instructors because their institutions have to make decisions that are um, safe for um, faculty, right? Uh, because faculty are most at risk for COVID um, and students and also um, the other non-instructing, non-instructing, um, non non-faculty also like administrative staff and like advisors or um, you know IT departments or other uh, facilities management group so but they took all those three into account and made some decisions to open the campuses partially or mostly virtual or mostly virtual plus on-site instruction so it has been a exercise in um, exercise and caution for most institutions as they try to adapt to this. Um, you know, I think the short-term impact of this is it forced the institutions to be a lot more flexible than they're used to, right? Because most institutions, especially colleges and universities are pretty, um, pretty normalized. Like they don't really have to make some reactive posturing to say, hey, should I open the classrooms or not? Should I, uh, what should, how should I manage my cafeterias? Or uh, what should I do with my dorm rooms? Or like, should we close down quads? Like these are decisions they never had to make, 
uh, ever, right? Uh, when when did they have to make decision on whether to uh, open the cafeteria or not? They they never had to do that, but they were forced to make some serious decisions in the last nine months, um, whether it's a community college or vocational school or a four-year institution or Ivy, Ivy League school, they were all faced with a similar challenge because of this pandemic. Uh, and uh, they all reacted in a, a combination of things. So most institutions have done what's called a hybrid learning where students are um, learning uh, a combination of their instruction through their learning management system, like uh, Canvas or Blackboard, if you will, and uh, uh, doing some, some instruction on campus. And uh, some institutions have done what's called a flipped classroom, where they learn on, on online and then they have a, they flip it where they come to classroom only to ask questions. Um, then some institutions have done 100% virtual where all their instruction is through learning management system. But I think very little, uh, significantly less percentage of institutions have performed what's a typical in-person learning that they were planning to do. So well, that's a long answer to how institutions reacted to the pandemic in the last nine months. Gotcha. Yeah. So thanks for setting the stage for us there. So then one thing as you're talking about all of this that I couldn't help but keep thinking about over and over again is how has the value of higher education been affected by all of this? So, you know, I, one might think if we're switching all education to virtual learning, then should should college be cheaper than it is? Should we get a discount? Right. Because we're, yeah. we're not going to class. We're not having the you know, the extracurricular activities and all of the things that college kids love to do. And all of that is part of the college experience. It's not just right. the academics, it's everything else that comes with it. And now these students are missing out on all of that. So then is, is there an argument to be made for, uh, you know, the value of of top universities has maybe gone down and maybe the value of community colleges or junior colleges has gone up say you know if i'm going to be all virtual anyway and i can't get that on campus experience then should i just go do you know one year of community college get some credits in get some classes in and then next year hopefully you know when a vaccine comes out and we can resume classes on campus then i can transfer to uh to a, a whatever you know top university i had been targeting in the first place you know that's I would call it a billion dollar question, right? Um, because if you think about it, um, let's just take a step back and say, even before the pandemic, these questions were asked and uh, were unresolved, right? For example, like what is the value of a degree? Why should I go to an institution uh, that costs me $65,000 per semester instead of an institution that cost me $3,000 a semester. Um, is it the quality of education? Is it, the, is it the reputation of the professors? Is it the name of the institution? Uh, or is it the you know, greenness of their quads? Is it the you know, name brand of their football? football? Um, 
team uh, or other teams or sports team, if you will, or is it um, you know some other reputational value? And each institution carries its own name brand, right? For example, University of Notre Dame is name, named, uh, is reputable for the history it provides and also uh, what it stands for from a uh, conservative background um, and and also sort of like for the Catholic tradition. And also like, you know, Stanford has its name only because of the fact that so many other entrepreneurs have come out of it. So the question that we need to answer is, what is the value of higher education? And of that value, how much of it is based on the institution and uh, why? So I think the, that's the first step uh, we need to think about uh, when we when we answer that question. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I, I can't speak to all institutions uh, or all parents, but I have a... I have a son myself and a daughter. My son is a junior in high school. And uh, one of the things that we talked about uh, when when we make decisions like this that are um, broad ranging is that, yeah, yeah experience absolutely matters, right? Uh, for the four-year college experience, um, while some of that is important, while the, the instructional quality is important, while the reputation of the instructors is important, uh, and also the brand of the institution is important. It's also important for students to get that rich experience that comes along with a group of like-minded students that have similar um, educational trajectory, similar philosophy, similar uh, passion, um, that they can come together and become lifelong friends. I think that is, for me, just as important or probably more important when uh, when we look at making decisions for the students. But that's, you know, making statements like that are kind of statements of privilege, if you will, uh, because at least, at least for me, where we are saying, you know what, I don't care how much money I spend. I want to make sure that I get my kids, you know, Varun, uh, my son, the education he needs. But if I step back and said, you know, what if I did not have that financial stability? What if I what if I have to make a decision based on the money uh, that I can afford to spend on education and not incur, I don't know, $150,000 of debt? Then the, the question really becomes like, what is the real value of the certificate that you get uh, from the institutions? And I think the real value um, you're absolutely correct. Um, the real value, if we value education for just that, uh, I don't see why uh, a student should not uh, complete their first year in community colleges and uh, finish their in introduction to uh, undergraduate degree in a community college. Because think about it, Math 101 is Math 101, whether it's taught by a Nobel laureate or Khan Academy. Or Physics 101 is uh, Physics 101, whether it's taught by, you know, I don't know, um, Isaac Newton or a, a, a regular physics professor. Makes sense? So we don't need to spend uh, $500 on a credit hour for introductory level courses like Math 101, Physics 101, or um, you know, Liberal Arts 101 as well. Um, but... Um, but again, it all depends on uh, aspiration of the student. Uh, it all depends on the financial flexibility of the parent. Uh, and uh, 
this pandemic has opened up those discussions in a much more aggressive way. It's not like we never had those discussions. We we've always have been having those discussions, but this pandemic really forced us to reckon with it. Where when 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 parents have to make a choice, saying I'm sending my student, my child to an institution that costs me $50,000 semester because I like their quads, I like their cafeteria, I like their churches, I like their sports stadiums, and all of those are shut down. Why should I still pay $50,000 semester? And that, that opens up for a couple of questions that we need to think about saying, what if they're not important to you? What if those other non-educational things are not important to you as parent, then the answer is very simple. Then you're really looking at community colleges as the true vehicles for education, um, especially for introductory level courses, and uh, you know using that as a launchpad for um, entering a four-year college. So um, I'm going to end with this. Like one of the good things that's uh, happened in the last ten years um, under Obama administration uh, is, is that. They have now opened up. Um, about 12 years ago, there was a more of a dis, uh, discrimination against education in community colleges, where four-year colleges were not accepting credits out of community college. Um, you know, for whatever reason, you know, they wanted to make sure that every student learns from four-year college, I guess. But uh, there has been a lot of uh, initiatives at the state level, like Complete College Georgia, Complete College Florida, and Complete College Tennessee, and every other uh, state for that matter, where four-year colleges cannot discriminate the credits that you earn from community colleges. So it is truly a good vehicle for uh, parents looking for affordable choices, uh, and also students uh, looking to not uh, amass debt while they finish their educational curriculum. So those are very important questions. Uh, if anything, pandemic has opened up those discussions at a much more aggressive level where parents are saying, do I really want to pay this much money for a green quad? Do I really want to pay this much money so that because of the name of the football team, like who cares? It doesn't matter. All right, everybody. So that was part one of this episode. We're splitting this up into two different episodes because we've got a long one here. If you liked what you heard from this first part, make sure you tune back to part two coming to you very soon. Thanks for listening and we'll be back again soon. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2n services.com that's podcast at n number two n services.com thank you